You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour, and we are here in our second week discussing Anthony Horowitz's Moriarty. Dramatic music and all over the top of our already existing dramatic music. We are talking chapters 10 to 16 of that book today, and Herds, I don't know about you, I'm having a great time with this book. It's just wonderful. We have hurdy-gurdy players, we have hair people who can't do hair, we've got corporate espionage, international espionage. We have a caper. We literally have a fake bank robbery. It's very exciting. Oh, it's so good. We have all of the, like, classic tropes of a cop who's a loose cannon and he gets results, you know? He's got three days left on the job. Because he <laughs> broke into an American embassy. Well, he didn't just break in. He walked in under false pretenses. That's the same thing. That's basically the same thing. But look, look point is- He didn't break anything. Except except for Chase's heart. But before we get into that, he catches some small-time crooks and forces them into a hastily thrown together scheme to catch Devereaux. And it fails miserably, and one of the crooks gets stabbed. Basically, he basically does an Assassin's Creed. He like grapples out of there with the help of his mooks who will die for him. It's incredible. So much happens. So much happens in the sequence of chapters. First of all, Herds, you predicted that the revenge for springing the operation of Clarence Devereaux would be that Athenley Jones' wife and child were taken, but no, it was in fact that Scotland Yard was bombed. Do we know that that's the revenge? Do we not? Look, the revenge could happen later. Well, it's the thing that happens directly next, Herd, so it must obviously be connected. That's how fiction works. I'm going to hold out hope that that was not in fact any sort of revenge for any sort of attack on anyone's business enterprise. Well, then what would it be for? Why would anyone blow up Scotland Yard? Are we getting into this? Because look, I have I have answers. I just want to talk about the character progression that's gone on this novel because, you know, Frederick Chase and Athelney Jones are just getting so close and chummy. Chase was there to meet Athelney Jones. He survived a bombing attempt in which uh, his secretary died. It's so touching that all of these moments just push, push these two men closer together. Look, I don't know if you do want to get into this before spoiler territory, <laughs> before the theories, because look, I've had some revelations and I think that this book might be a tragedy dressed up as a romance, dressed up as a murder mystery. There we go. Which is something that I've only ever seen in like two other books. So I'm excited for this. Let's just say that Devereaux is probably not responsible for those bombings and that Jones is not going to like where his budding friendship with this Pinkerton fellow is going. I also enjoy that Devereux reacts like a vampire when he's exposed to sunlight. Yes, it's so good. I thought that maybe it was a fake Devereux, but that reaction was so incredibly exaggerated. He's like, no, and he's hissing and he's like, back away from me, good guys. Get that cross away from me, he says. I love how exaggerated that entire scene is. It very much reads as the sort of supernatural fiction that we were talking about last week on the show, where, like, when the methods of Holmes are employed, suddenly the world is more magical than at face value. Speaking of scenes that you think are going to go one way, but then go another way, when we meet Jones's wife and child, the wife takes Chase aside and basically shows him... Jones's comic book room where he has posters of Superman all over the walls <laughs> and says it's he so really good. admired Superman. So when Superman died, he felt that he had to take up his morals. 
and obviously Superman is Sherlock Holmes, just to be very clear. But like, I really enjoy the way that Horowitz uses Elspeth as a character, trying to understand his intentions in amongst all the blood and the chaos. I think there's a great intelligence shown and there's definitely some of that trope where the wife of the cop has an intelligence that he doesn't. Yeah, that's the other thing that's really interesting about this character relationship is that Elspeth is the thing that Sherlock Holmes could not have, right? Athelney Jones cannot be the eccentric, weird, and inhuman Sherlock Holmes because he has Elspeth. And at the same time, Frederick Chase cannot be Watson. It establishes both why Jones is the way that he is in this book, but also why he's sort of stuck the way he is in this book. It very clearly flagged to me that like his journey is going to end by the time we get to the end of this book. Obviously, the fun part here is that Chase acts as a tempter in a lot of these scenes. Hold on, are you... <laughs> I feel like you're making assertions about Chase's character here, Herds. I don't know what you're talking about. This is purely metaphorical. But when Jones, look, I'm going to point to the text. When <laughs> when Jones brings up the idea of the two of them doing a Sherlock and Watson together, and you can be my Watson and I'll be your Sherlock, he has doubts for a little bit. And whenever he has doubts, Chase is like, don't you doubt for a minute, buddy, that you're going to catch the guy and save the day. This myth that you're chasing, the myth of being the super detective is attainable. But at the same time, though, like as much as Chase is the tempter, the serpent in this relationship, you very much do get the real sense that like when Chase says that you could do these things to Athelney Jones, as you say there, at some level, he does believe it. And I like that Anthony Horowitz has been able to portray this relationship as simultaneously suspicious and like heartwarming. Even if Athelney ends up getting betrayed at the end of this story, he'll be betrayed over something that's genuine. And the fun thing, of course, is this is something that I talked about last week on the show. You said something to the effect of, oh, you said something really interesting about <laughs> the entire book. And I was like, I don't know what I said. I said so many things. But one of the things that I was kind of talking about is how if Watson was the narrator of the Reichenbach Falls, you know, why he would or wouldn't leave certain details out and how he would betray himself. And we have to remember that in this story, Chase is the one telling it. And so when we are talking about all the terrible things that are probably going to happen to Jones, that comes in through the way that he's portrayed because he is portrayed as a tragic figure rather than a, a completely reprehensible dupe. You can believe that Chase has respect for him, I guess, that there is competency there, you know? You could, for example, do the opposite where Chase has lots of respect for himself and is deriding Athelney the entire time, as was sort of done in his original appearance in The Sign of the Four. Yes. But instead, in this book, we very much see him in a sympathetic light that he clearly also, to some extent, sees himself in. You could also argue that if Chase were to write this book in a way that was not as sympathetic, that the mystery of this book would not exist. But that's something we can discuss in more detail in a little bit, I think. I thought the other thing that was really fun about this sequence is how much movement back and forth we get between all sorts of set pieces. Like when I was going to break up the chapters here, one of the interesting things that happened in my head was that the chapters were in a different order. Really? <laughs> okay. Each of the segments of this story are very modular, but all of them also have this great structure to them where they stand as nice short stories on their own. When we covered 
the actual Arthur Conan Doyle novels, we were talking a lot about how they are more akin to modern pirate tales. They're swashbuckling adventure stories than mysteries. Whereas what Anthony Horowitz has done here is that the sort of meta-narrative, as you say, is this tragedy wrapped in romance, wrapped in mystery, but the individual chapters themselves have piecemeal swashbuckling adventure stories. And I really liked that. Yeah, they're still engaging enough to read. I think that the fact that we have such strong characters as well to kind of carry us through these scenes definitely helps that. You know, each each scene follows logically from the actions of the characters. Because we're not committing to like a proper closed circle murder mystery where you have 10 suspects and they need to all be viable, Horowitz can sort of laser focus in on these characters and figure out what makes them tick. And all other characters, like the bloke at the barbershop who is there to exposit. And then Horowitz is like, well, you've served your purpose and he gets his throat cut. Like, that's it for that character. There are all of these characters who sort of poke their heads in. They have their moment and it's fun. You understand what the character is there for. They feel real and then they disappear. And watching the way, especially if you're paying attention to the meta mystery, the way that Chase and Jones interact with these simpler characters is really where the novel shines. I agree. And you know what, Herds? I think we should leave it there. Head over to the murder mystery section where I have some tough questions that I think you're going to struggle answering. Uh It's time to talk about Moriarty, I guess. Who? Moriarty! This is Death of the Reader, your murder mystery world tour here on 2SER 107.3. We are talking Anthony Horowitz, Moriarty, chapters 10 to 16. Stick with us, more to come on 2SER 107.3. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Dom Romeo here with you. I'm delighted to be joined by Australian crime fiction royalty, Chris Hammer. His sixth crime fiction book and eighth novel overall, The Seven, is the third outing for Ivan Lukic and Nell Buchanan. Am I pronouncing their names right? Because I only pronounce them in my head, Chris. So do I. So I I say Ivan Lukic, but I'm not sure that is accurate. So I should really go and listen to the audio book because they'll probably get it right. The seven founding families of Yawandari have lorded over their district for a century, growing ever more rich and powerful. A man is found dead in the canals of the Yawandari irrigation scheme that made their wealth. Ivan and Nell are called in before this political time bomb sets off. But can they defuse it? Chris Hammer, welcome back to Death of the Reader. Oh, so fantastic to be on this fantastic show. First of all, we just found out that you've taken the bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival Danger Award for Best Crime Novel of 2023 with The Tilt. This is your second time on this particular prize. Do you have your eye on a new trophy cabinet now that the current one is presumably running out of space? (laughs) Oh, what a question to ask. Look, it's fantastic to win uh, The Danger for the second time. The criteria has changed a little. The first time I wondered, it was a shared prize with Gary Jubilant, the former detective. The criteria back then was about crime books, very much in a Sydney setting. The criteria now is broader. It highlights Australian settings and also social justice issues. I think that's really astute, if you like, because so many Australian crime novels uh, cover Australian settings, often rural, but not always. Um, 
and also the social justice issues crop up again and again and again. I have family in Narandra, and one of your books is set right in and around Narandra. And I'm kind of half expecting when I give copies of it to family that my brother, who's a doctor, might say, oh, I know who that character is. I treated him. So you, this does happen. Um, it's almost like, is art imitating life or life Im- imitating art? Treasure and Dirt is set up in a fictional version of Lightning Ridge. It's an opal mining town. But I inv- invented this kind of religious cult that were getting their, their, their devotees to register themselves at miners so they, they could achieve a larger you know, economies of scale sort of thing. I thought that was a great idea. And then afterwards, I was told that that had actually happened there. So there is every good chance that if, if you're ever uh, kidnapped and turned up as one of the bodies in a little village, it's because you've accidentally told a true story without meaning to because you've got that imagination. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've never thought of that. Thanks for that. Oh, sorry. I'll sleep well tonight. <laughs> <laughs> but not with the fishes. Yeah. Last time round in the tilt, your cast wrangled with historical impacts on rural towns and in particular with the large water regulator stifling the forest. Now, in, in seven families, the titular families uh, are involved in the irrigation scheme. What drew you back <laughs> to the politics of water? At one stage, I was a journalist for 30 years, and one of my responsibilities, my rounds, if you like, was the environment. And this is in around 2008. The Rudd government had just been elected, and uh, there were these two big environmental issues that they're trying to address the scarcity of water in the Murray-Darling Basin and climate change. Uh, And, you know, 15 years later, there's still these big, two big intractable, seemingly intractable issues. Then I went and wrote the book, The River, and went out there and see how it really impacted. So I had this background knowledge about some of the, the issues there, both for the towns, the farmers, for the environment, for the Indigenous sort of histories of the area. I write start writing The Tilt, which is set in this, a real location, the Bama Millawa Forest, the world's largest river red gum forest. And so water is, is central to that story. And that made me think about all these issues about irrigation. But then that seeded the ideas for the seven. Each of these books has been inspired by particular locations. In the tilt, it was the Balma Millowa Forest and its flooding. In Treasure and Dirt, it was Lightning Ridge. Why did the Colliamboli Irrigation Area call for hereditary oligopoly? The Uundri the, the isn't based on Colliamboli. It just happens to sit in the location where Colliamboli was developed. It's on the south bank of the Murrumbidgee. On the north bank of the Murrumbidgee, the government was developing the Murrumbidgee Irrigation Area. Uh, which is centred around the towns of Griffith and Leeton. Both are designed by Walter and Marion Burley Griffin. They have a circular layout and they've got lots of Art Deco buildings. The other big difference, of course, is those irrigation schemes like the MIA were developed by government. They didn't fit my story. So I invented this scheme where where the, the, the settler families were looking at this scheme across the river. They wanted something similar the government wouldn't come to the party, so they went They went ahead and built it themselves. And so a century on, it's become a very prosperous, successful place, but no one is doing quite as well as these seven families who have just become more and more prosperous and powerful. You 
mentioned there uh, the Burley Griffins. I had no idea they designed those towns. It's lovely to learn a bit of history yeah. in the process as well. Yeah. So Ivan's learning to temper himself and his professional efficiency after three years of working with Nell. What makes writing the interplay between the pair so engaging, even as their styles coalesce? It's, um, yeah, I'm interested in the characters. Of course, I have to be interested in the characters and what happens to them. If I found them boring or, or not engaging or something, how's the reader possibly going to find them interesting or engaging? Lovely. So in writing a book, because I'm, I'm you know, as I said, I'm, uh, I'm a kind of a pantser. I start with that, you know, a, a loose idea, a setting, a crime or something, and start writing. So the stories evolve as I'm writing them, but so do the characters. And that's one of the interesting things for me. Not so much. Sometimes it's where am I taking them? And sometimes it's where are they taking me? Oh, lovely, lovely. So the follow-up question to that, we spend a fair chunk of time in the opening of this of the seven uh, exploring your wondery through Ivan's morning jog, and its clear routine is the driving force for him and his recovery. You've mentioned that the routine of writing is a bit like daily exercise for you. So how else do you see yourself or have you put yourself in Nell and Ivan. It's challenging, but it's enormously fun and satisfying to stretch the imagination. And I think the secret behind that is a sense of authenticity in the characters. I wanted to have flawed characters and complex characters. Ivan, if you met him, he might not be that likeable. But if you get inside his head, you begin to understand him. Nell, on the other hand, I think is much more immediately likable. She's a great character and they both stuff up. They both make mistakes, both professionally and personally. Maybe that makes them more relatable. And they are affected by what they see and what they experience. The way people deal with death makes it real and immediate rather than... It's not a comic book. Although there are comic moments in the book. I kind of like, you know, the, my books have a bit, got a bit more light and shade. Mm-hmm. So sometimes there's some amusing, so just a little bit of dialogue or something. In this book, there's two bachelor and spinsters balls. And this, these are sort of an outback tradition. The first one is in the storyline set in 1913, serving its original purpose, which was to bring eligible young men and women living on very isolated properties into a social gathering so they could meet each other. By the 1990s, they just become rather debauched sort of piss-ups, right? But the one in the 90s is more just fun. Like, to, to write, I mean, it, it, it has a comic touch to it. By having a little bit of light and shade or a little bit of comic relief, that then, by contrast, makes the, the more dramatic chapters all the more dramatic. Absolutely. That is so true. And Australians, if I may generalise, Australians are very good at at having the sadness or the the, the other side of it to, to make the balance and to make the contrast. Mm. Yeah, a bit of pathos goes a long way. That's the word I couldn't remember. There's, yep. there's pathos in Australian culture that you don't find as readily in other cultures, mm. and it, it makes all the difference. Chris? Thanks so much for joining us on Death of the Reader. And thanks for being in here in person. I, I promised Felix 
I wouldn't fanboy. He gave me permission to fanboy a little. Consider yourself fanboyed. <laughs> Thank you so much, Tom. Chris Hammer, author of The Seven and recently announced winner of the Danger Award for Best Crime Novel of 2023 with The Tilt. Thank you to Alan and Unwin, Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival and DMCPR for their assistance in sourcing copies and preparing this interview. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour, and we are here discussing Anthony Horowitz Moriarty. Chapters 10 to 16, Herds is in the hot seat, and goodness me, Herds, you missed out on a bonus point by, by getting the wrong revenge plot, or did you? You you were rebutting me earlier in the episode. What what other possible explanation could there be? All right, shall we? Can we... Why Scotland Yard is blowed up. Let's just get into this. So Chase is Moriarty. That's that's the twist. That's the big twist. I'm calling, I'm calling it. And by calling it, I mean, I feel fairly 99.99% confident that this is the twist because the book is called Moriarty and he hasn't shown up yet in any capacity. Well, he's dead. I think that all of the mysteries can be solved pretty cleanly if we assume that Chase is Moriarty and he's orchestrating certain events as he goes along with all the insider knowledge he's gaining for being partnered with a British police chief. I'm pretty sure that Chase tells Jones that Perry was given directions to his office. Either way, he actually places the bomb in the telegraph room. And I'll be oh. honest, until maybe 20 minutes ago, just before we aired, I had no idea why he would want to bomb the telegraph room. And then I went back and I noticed <laughs> I noticed that there was there was a hanging thread. That right before that, he says, how quickly would you be able to get word to the Pinkertons? Yes, yes. <laughs> Lestrade and, and his goons are going to talk to Robert Pinkerton about who Chase is. Because it was just one message, it's just overlooked in the chaos of the bombing. And this is Moriarty bombing the place with Perry delivering the bomb. And the person in the carriage, I think is Sebastian Moran, because that's a character that has been established, but hasn't really done anything in the story. I mentioned to you, Herds, that there was one line in this book that I read and instantly, the second I saw it, I thought to myself, Herds is going to immediately know the twist of this book the moment his eyes even glance over these letters. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you, Herds, if you think you could tell me what that was. So the line that I read that I thought was the line that you thought that I would twig on, it is like reading a book in which the chapters have been published in the wrong order or where the writer has deliberately set out to confuse. You're supposed to think, oh, just like Horowitz confuses us. But actually, the writer is Chase, and he's the one who's confusing me. Is that the line, though, or did you have something else in mind? No. The line that I had in mind was when we actually go meet with Elspeth, and she is immediately suspicious of Frederick Chase. She's like, oh, it's terrible that evil should happen to arrive here with you. And he says, <laughs> yes. um, actually, I followed it. And she says, and yet you arrived at the same time. Yeah, at the same time is, is definitely a, a telling line there. Because, like, why does Elspeth interrogate him if not to get the reader to think about why he's here a little bit more closely? And yet at the same time is really the line that's, you know, one of the many nails in the coffin. I think it's so interesting because on the one hand, I'm sort of tempted to sit here and be like, no, other explanation. Goodness, no, have you considered this other thing? But at the same time, I think that the fact that this book 
very clearly telegraphs to you what the twist is, but not how the twist is going to happen, is something that a lot of readers seem to get caught up on. I've seen a lot of people being like, oh gosh, the twist was so obvious by the time it happened. And it's like, yes, yes, that's the point. Is this relationship real? Are Frederick and Athelney working together or is it like parasitic? Like that imagery of Clarence Devereux as a vampire, I think is very intentional because it's meant to make you think about Frederick Chase and go, is the blood being drained from the weak, feeble physicality of Athelney Jones to suit Frederick Chase's purposes? I also want to call out the conversation after the bombing in particular, which is quite fun to read once you figure out, of course, that Chase is Moriarty. And there are lots of conversations like this reading back on it where Jones is speculating about the reason for the bombing attack and how it's attack on his life and da-da-da-da-da, and this is what it implicates. And Chase is sitting in the corner effectively just saying, but why would they do that? But I got you out of the building. But how would they have the opportunity to do this? Like in a Sherlock Holmes book, in an Arthur Condor Sherlock Holmes book, these are the stupid questions of the friend that prompt Holmes into explaining the answer to the audience. But in this book, they are Moriarty saying, how have you not figured this out? (laughs) Like asking very reasonable questions to kind of make, make his partner conjecture more and and drill his rabbit hole ever deeper. We say, what if the Watson is not just there to be the helpful friend, but has an agenda? This is really one of my favorite parts of this book, because so often when we look at adaptations, we'll watch them, we'll read them, we'll listen to them, and we'll think to ourselves, why wasn't this just an original story? What are you actually doing with the source material here that is interesting? And Anthony Horowitz has chosen explicitly for this book to not write a Sherlock Holmes story because the thing is he has to say are better in an original parallel context, which is what if Watson had an agenda? What if Sherlock wasn't as smart as he said he was? What if he was given access to the British police? There's there's so many questions. So if you get to the end of this book thinking to yourself, well, that twist was obvious, It's because the point isn't necessarily the twist in my mind. The point is the things that the twist facilitates. And if you spot it coming early, then you can think on what all of these other questions are. And I love the way that he's framed them. It's also quite critical, which I like just as a flavor where he's taken the idea of a swashbuckling British detective and thrown him into the real world effectively and said, what if... You know, this world is much more dangerous than Sherlock could deal with. And the thing is, is I'm I'm sitting here like, you know, agreeing with you that you've spotted the twist because I think it would be futile of me to argue otherwise, but still being really confident that I have a lot of other interesting things to say about the coming two weeks. Like, the more I reflect back on this book, the more I think to myself, that was really, really clever. And I love books like that. I love books that make me excited to think more about them, to read more alongside them. When I build up the hype way too high, it'll never reach the ceiling that you place it on. The The expectation is that this will be the second coming of Christ. <laughs> um, but as Holmes is the Christ of murder mystery fiction, I think we'll be okay. I think we'll be fine. I have been thinking a lot about why Moriarty would do all of this. It's like the big one that I'm kind of interested in. 
And my best guess is that it's contained within the conversation that the barber has, where he talks about how Moriarty would take 20%, whereas Devereux would take 50%. Take 50% and leave a trail of blood. Yes. And obviously, again, it's that dynamic between the gentlemanly criminal and the bloodthirsty American one. But also, in terms of his profit margins, they would probably go down pretty far if Devereux's like, yeah, we can enter into a partnership, but I will be taking... 50% of all of your profits, you know? It sounds like Devereaux's goons would be pretty happy to fall under the wing of Moriarty if Devereaux was out of the picture, so. The other thing I wanted to ask, Herds, is can you actually spot the twist coming? I would love to know what the moment of twist is going to be and what the outcome is going to be at the end of this book. What is Moriarty or Frederick Chase's play to best Clarence Devereaux. To best Clarence Devereaux. Oh my goodness. Is he going to assume Devereaux's identity? That would be the ultimate double switcheroo. That would be pretty fun. I don't know if that's sufficient as an answer, but... I'm happy with that, with that half of the answer, but what's the actual <laughs> moment of twist? How, how, do we, how do we finally reveal? I mean, I've been working under the assumption that he's been playing Jones so that Jones can help him find Devereaux. So it's probably going to involve sending Jones into a trap and you'll frame it as like, this is your big Sherlock moment. Go walk into that obvious trap over there. (laughs) You'll be fine. And then Devereaux will like play his hand. I think I have the substance of your points. I'm just kind of drip feeding bonus points here in case you've missed wildly. And I think it's kind of fun. I think it's kind of fun in this book where people say that the, the twist is too obvious that there's still questions to ask about it. That means I'm wrong. That's a shame. Uh, <laughs> oh, well, if I don't get all the points in this novel, or even if I get all of them, but I don't answer all of your questions, at least I'm not pretending to be Sherlock Holmes Oof. and probably going to get shot in the back of the head. Youch. At least I'm not that character. Is that part of your prediction that he's going to shoot Jones in the back of the head? Yeah, sure. That sounds reasonable. Okay. I think he has to do it himself. That has to be how it goes down. Well... Next week on the show, we will be covering all the way to the end of Anthony Horowitz's Moriarty. Herds, I'm very excited to get to it. This is your Murder Mystery World Tour here on 2SER 107.3. We'll be back with Moriarty next week on the show. Catch you then. Let's go. Let's go.